All right, well, um, again, welcome everybody. I'm glad I got a chance to be here and, and uh, stand up here before you and share what God's been laying on my heart through a, a passage of Scripture today. Um, uh, we're going to cover a big chunk today. Uh, seems like for quite a while I've been in the book of Acts, and uh, it's just been, uh, there's so much that happened through the book of Acts. One of the big things, one of the big themes that, uh, that you can see all the way through the book of Acts is just how God is sovereign and every little thing that takes place, how he works uh, through some amazing circumstances to bring about his will um, and, and to further his kingdom. And I think we're going to see that today uh, as we go through this. And, um, but how many of you guys are aware of what cultural intelligence is? Nick, Jake, culture, huh? What's that? Well, no, cultural intelligence. <laughs> It can be sometimes, yes. Cultural intelligence is uh, is something I actually had a class in college about this uh, just a couple of semesters ago. But it, it's really interesting. I never saw the importance of it. But every culture has their different norms, their different standards that they operate by. And uh, if we're going to communicate with a different culture, we need to understand that. We need to know that. And, and as we get into this text, we can see that Paul is just an, an absolute master at this. Uh, but it's relevant for us because if we are to present, you know, we don't realize how culturally uh, non-diverse we are in this little town of Atwater. You know, just, we, don't, we don't get out. We don't see much. You go uh, to West Virginia, it's a different culture. Imagine what that's like if you go across an ocean. You know, all these different things. Um, through that class, I learned I had to do a project. And I'm standing here, and I'm waving my hands around talking. In some cultures, that's looked at as a sign of just ultimate uh, lack of confidence in what you're saying. That culture would expect you to stand there like this and deliver your message, which is almost the opposite here. If somebody just stands here like this, like I used to get made fun of, if I just stand here and read from my notes behind here, it's a lack of confidence, and you guys perceive that as a lack of confidence. But uh, like I said, we're going to learn here that Paul is, is really good at this, but... Um, the big idea that I want to get across today is, uh, is that, or that gets the title of the message, is a provocative life. And part of that confidence, part of that knowing that culture is, is how we can see that Paul is uh, uh, living this provocative life. And as we see how Paul's life is so provocative, that's a call for us as well, to live a provocative life. We've heard it said uh, countless times. How many times have, have we been up here and say that as Christians, we're supposed to stand out? We're supposed to live different from the rest of the world. We're supposed to live these lives that make people ask, what makes him tick? Why does he do the things that he do? Why is he so generous? Why does she give all of her time to this ministry? What is that? So as we go through this, hopefully we can kind of focus on that and, and, and that we can gain a foothold to maybe where we can live that provocative life. So... Uh, like I said, as today, we're going to uh, go through Acts chapter 26. Uh, just to give you a little background here, uh, this, is, uh, this is a speech from Paul to a king. Uh, Paul's in prison, and what sets all this up is that uh, right after the third missionary journey, Paul comes back, he goes to Jerusalem. Uh, he goes into the temple uh, to worship, and a riot ensues because there's some other Jews there that are accusing him of bringing Greeks into the temple. This would have been a huge no-no. Uh, this riot got so bad that they ended up closing the temple doors. They cast Paul out. They're 
literally beating him to death. And then the, uh, the Roman centurions and tribune, actually the tribune gets word of this and sends a centurion, a bunch of soldiers down there, and they rescue Paul. They arrest him, but kind of for his own safety. Um, otherwise, this, this mob would have beaten him to death. So from there, Paul is uh, uh, he's in jail in the Roman barracks, and he's uh, uh, tried before the Sanhedrin. They can't come to a conclusion, so they're going to do it again. A couple days later, they're going to try to have him try it again. At this point in time, there's a, uh, uh, a plot made to kill Paul by some other Jews. The Roman centurion gets word of this, sends him to Caesarea, north of Jerusalem, for his own safety again, but to a different Roman governor. This governor's name is Felix. Um, so Paul goes up to Caesarea, and he meets with Felix. Felix hears his case, doesn't have any grounds to charge him. So what's Felix do? Well, he wants to do the Jews a favor. He's also there to appease the Jews. So instead of uh, doing anything with him, Felix just leaves him in prison for two years. Does that sound like fun to anybody? That sounds like a, a rough way to go. Um, you know, we think about persecution as bad. It'd probably be worse to be forgotten about for two years. Uh, but uh, one, one other quick thing, quick, as I was studying for this, one other quick uh, uh, note that I wanted to make about the life of Felix is that uh, Felix is, we need to guard ourselves from being like Felix. In Acts chapter 24, it says that uh, Felix, uh, he kept Paul in prison, but from time to time he would pull him out and have conversations with him. As Felix did this, you know that Paul was preaching the word of God to him. And in Acts 24, it even says that, uh, that Felix was, uh, what was the word they used? Alarmed by what Paul was preaching. Felix would get alarmed by what Paul was preaching, and they would send him back to prison and go on about his life. Now, I know I've been guilty of that. I'll come here on Sunday mornings, or I'll listen to another sermon, and it'll alarm me. It'll convict me. And if it's on my phone and my podcast, it'll alarm me. It'll convict me. Wow, that's the truth of God. And I'll turn that off and I'll put it in my pocket and I'll go on about my life and not let that conviction take root and change my life. And we see that's, that's what happened with Felix. So after two years of this, Felix makes some bad decisions and gets ousted and a new governor takes his place. This governor's name is Festus. Festus's first order of business is to take care of what Felix didn't, Paul being one of those. So Festus wants to send Paul back to Jerusalem for another trial. And this is all just a setup to Acts chapter 26. So Festus wants to send Paul back. Paul says, no, you're not sending me back because that's a death sentence. He knows that the Jews are there waiting to kill him or have another you know, ambush on the way. So what's Paul do? Anybody know what he does? He appeals to Caesar. And Festus says, to, appeaser you've, to Caesar you have appealed, to Caesar you're going to go. So Paul knows that uh, uh, his only hope is to appeal to Caesar, and from that he's going to be sent to Rome. Festus still doesn't have anything to charge Caesar with, or charge Paul with. Enter Agrippa. This is Agrippa II. Agrippa II, um, he's related to uh, Herod Agrippa the Great, or Herod the Great. We know him from Matthew chapter 2, the, the slaughter of the innocents. Uh, that was his grandfather. And then Agrippa I was the, uh, the, 
the Roman governor who is uh, responsible for the, uh, for the beheading of James, the Apostle James in Jerusalem. We read about that in the book of Acts. So the background there is that Agrippa knows the Jewish background. He knows the Jewish story. He knows the Jewish scriptures. Agrippa II, who Paul is, is witnessing before here, is even in charge of the Roman temple, or not the Roman, the, the Jewish temple at Jerusalem. He's the one that's appointing the high priest. So this is important to know as we, as we go and we uh, go through this conversation that, uh, or this speech that really Paul is uh, uh, giving to Agrippa here. So with that, we're just going to start in uh, Acts chapter 26. And uh, like I said, we're pretty much just going to walk through this whole chapter here. And I'm going to pull out some points of, about this provocative life, about why Paul's life is so provocative, about why we should question him, about why he was being questioned. Okay. Uh, so right off the bat here, uh, verse, verse 1 says, uh, So Agrippa said to Paul, You have permission to speak for yourself. Then Paul stretched out his hand and made his defense. I consider myself fortunate that it is before you, King Agrippa, I am going to make my defense today against all the accusation of the Jews, especially because you are familiar with all the customs and controversies of the Jews. Therefore, I beg you to listen to me patiently. Right off the beginning here, you get this idea of Paul's cultural intelligence. He stands up there and he motions with his hand. This is a distinctly Roman thing. Paul understood what the Roman culture was about. As he's ready to deliver this, uh, this witness, he's standing before a crowd of people. Uh, I think it's Acts chapter 24, 25 says that uh, Agrippa came in with a bunch of pomp, you know, which means that there was a whole entourage that came with him. He came with, uh, it would have been a bunch of Jewish officials, uh, probably some of the, uh, uh, the Sanhedrin, some of the council. It would have been with Roman tribunes. It would have been with common commoners, you know, just servants, and it was with kings and rulers. There was a whole group of people there. But this is a Roman court. This is a Roman context. So Paul addresses them just like a Roman would. He demands their attention by doing this. And that's a, that's a great lesson for us that as we go somewhere with a message with the gospel that we need to know the cultural uh, norms and stuff so that we can be heard. The next thing is that Paul addresses, who does he address? He addresses Agrippa, he's in charge because of his, he, Paul is in prison because of his Jewish beliefs. So he's addressing the Jewish king. Verse 4, says, My manner of life from you, spent from the beginning among my own nation and in Jerusalem, is known by all the Jews. They have known for a long time, if they are willing to testify, that according to the strictest party of our religion, I have lived as a Pharisee. And now I stand here on trial because of my hope and the promise made by God to our fathers, to which our twelve tribes hope to attain as they earnestly worship day and night. And for this hope I am accused by Jews, O King. Why is it thought incredible by any of you that God raises the dead? Paul's on trial because of his hope. That is provocative. Do you have a hope in something that is strong enough that people are going to question you on it? Do you have a trust and a, a belief in something that, that compels your every, every day, your actions every day? This is what Paul's being on trial for, for his hope in the resurrection. Now, as it says here, Paul grew up as a Pharisee. 
He lived his life as a Pharisee, which believed in the hope of a resurrection. That's what the Scripture teaches, and that's what the Pharisees believed. As that was contradictory to the Sadducees, who didn't, but this was Paul's belief. Now, the cool thing about this is Paul always had this head knowledge about a hope, about a hope of a resurrection. And then on the way to Damascus one day, he had an encounter with the risen Jesus Christ. And you guys have heard Pastor Lee talk about when it drops from the head knowledge, that 18-inch drop to the heart knowledge. That's exactly what happened to Paul that day. He had a head knowledge of the hope of the resurrection. But when he met Jesus Christ, it dropped from here to his heart. It was no longer just a knowledge, but it was a reality. It was this reality that, that Paul could go to prison for. It was a reality that Paul could be stoned for. It was a reality that Paul would travel oceans and, and to different foreign lands to communicate was the hope of the resurrection. It was a reality in Paul's life that would supersede everything else. You know, as we sit here today and we were praying for uh, the Tacus family, I pray that that is a hope that supersedes everything else in their life. As they mourn the passing of a loved one, that's the hope that, that brings us through those times. That's the hope that we each need. This is a hope that, that Paul was so grounded in, so founded in, he would write verses uh, like Philippians 8-11. through 11. He says, Indeed, I count everything as lost because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish, in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible I may attain the resurrection from the dead. Like I said, this hope became real for Paul when he encountered Christ. That's where that hope finds its grounding in each one of us. When we encounter Christ, that's where the hope lies. That's where, when we see the, the risen Christ, this hope becomes real to us. It becomes, uh, it becomes a substantive thing. The only way that I can, I was racking my brain trying to think of an analogy for this. Um, and I guess the way that, that maybe this encounter of Christ now in this life would, would work uh, Analogy-wise, last year I had the opportunity to go elk hunting. This is something that I dreamed of since I was in high school. And do the math, probably 30 years later, I was able to do it. And I had planned, and I had talked to the people we were going with. We were excited to go, made all the plans. Then August rolls around, and I, I go on the website for the Colorado Department of Natural Resources, and I send them a whole bunch of money. And then a few days later, a tag shows up in the mail. This little green piece of paper made things so much more real. For 30 years, this had been a dream, but now I'm holding the legal rights to do it in my hand. That was a big deal for me. That's what happens when Paul met Christ. This idea of a resurrection found its truth in the risen Lord. That's what provokes a provocative life. That's what provokes people to ask questions. When we have that same hope, this is the hope that Paul says is of first importance. First uh, Corinthians 15, it's all about the resurrection. I mean, if you guys have been here through Easter, you know that we, uh, we this is 
the past the yeah, the chapter of scripture that Pastor Lee likes to go to most for the resurrection because it shows the hope that we have in the resurrection. Paul says, "For I delivered you as first importance what I also received that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures that he was buried that he was raised and on the third day he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures." So central is this hope to Paul's life and to our life that he says, "If it's not for the resurrection." We are a people most of all to be pitied, that there is no hope, that we're still in our sins. But to know Christ is a confirmation of our own future resurrection. To know Christ is knows that He is the first fruits, the, the forerunner of these things. To know Christ is, is to know that we go beyond this physical existence, that we have an eternal existence where we'll be unmarred by sin, where we'll be unaffected by by the results of, uh, of death and decay, but we'll live forever with Him. To live with that kind of hope, if we can each live with that kind of hope and make that central in our daily lives, people are going to ask questions. How do you endure these things? How do you endure the hardship and remain joyful? How do you endure the uh, maybe the ridicule because you're devoted to something that they're not? How do you endure it? Well, it's because I have a hope that goes beyond we we'll continue reading here. Um, verse 9 says, I myself was convinced that I ought to do many things in oppressing and opposing the name of Jesus of Nazareth. And I did so in Jerusalem. I not only locked up many of the saints in prison after receiving authority from the chief priests, but when they were put to death, I cast my vote against them. And I punished them often in all the synagogues and tried to make them blaspheme and in raging fury against them, I persecuted them, even to foreign cities. Paul had a passion and a zeal to go after what he believed in. It may, our passions may not be as extreme as Paul's. We may not follow them quite as closely as he did. But I've talked to enough of you to know that every one of you is passionate about something. If I get in a conversation with you, something you're passionate about, I can watch your eyes, and your eyes will get a little wider. The corner of your lips will start to go up a little bit. You'll start to smile. You'll lean in. You'll perk up. We are all passionate about something. We can see that Paul's passion never changed. When he was a Pharisee, he was passionate for the law. He was passionate about God. He was willing to travel to foreign cities and kill people for what he believed. He was willing to do whatever it took. Then after this encounter with Christ, he was still passionate for God. His motives and his, his, uh, the way he operated totally changed. He went from one that was persecuting Christians and, and, and condemning Christians to one who was offering forgiveness to all, to one who was preaching the good news of Jesus Christ. His passion never changed, but he was passionate. What are you passionate about? Are you passionate enough to live a life that it provokes questions, that it begs people to ask, you know, what's going on? Why is he so devoted to that? One of the things we really need to remember if we're passionate about something is that our lives are going to display the correct answer. What are we passionate about? Every, like I said, every one of us is passionate about. Is it our recreation? Is it our leisure? Is it our hobbies? Is it our money? Or is it like Paul? Are we passionate to share the good news of Christ? Are we passionate about the gospel? 
His passion provokes questions in so many people. Moving on here, verse 12 says, In this connection I journeyed to Damascus with the authority and the commission of the chief priests. At midday, O king, I saw on the way a light from heaven, brighter than the sun, that shone around me and to those who journeyed with me. And when they had all fallen to the ground, I heard a voice saying to me in the Hebrew language, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? It is hard for you to kick against the goats. This, this right here, this is another uh, great illustration of, uh, of cultural intelligence. This kicking against the goats, a goat is a cattle prod, pretty much. So if you're chasing cows around and you've got a sharp, pointy stick and they kick against it, what happens? It, it hurts them. But in this Greek culture, in this Roman culture, this kicking against the goads was also meant that you're going against the gods. So as Paul conveys this, you're kicking against the goads. The Israelites in the, in the room would have understood what it meant. The Romans in the room would have understood what it meant. That he was having a conversation with God himself when he did this. That when, as God was, as Jesus was grabbing hold of him and, and changing his life on this road to Damascus. He's saying, why are you persecuting me? This is not what you're supposed to be doing. Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? It is hard for you to kick against the goads. And I said, who are you, Lord? And the Lord said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. But rise and stand upon your feet, for I have appeared to you for this purpose to appoint you as a servant and a witness to the things in which you have seen me and in those in which I will appear to you, delivering you from your people and from the Gentiles to whom I am sending you, to open their eyes that they may turn from darkness to light and from God and from the power of Satan to God, that they may receive forgiveness of sins and a place among those who are sanctified by faith in me. Therefore, King Agrippa, I was not disobedient to the heavenly vision, but declared first to those in Damascus, then in Jerusalem, throughout all the region of Judea, and also to the Gentiles, that they should repent and turn to God, performing deeds in keeping with their repentance. Here's the third point that really provokes questions in our lives. We read through this it's several times. This is the, the second or the third time. I think this is the second time Paul tells of his conversion story, but it's the third account of it in the book of Acts. And every time we see what Paul's actions are, after he witnesses, after he recognizes who he's talking to, he immediately goes into work, goes into action. You want to provoke questions? Display some radical obedience in your life to Jesus Christ. This is what Paul did so profoundly. This is what we are all called to do, is this radical obedience to what Christ has called us to do. He didn't hesitate. He says, I'm going. Okay, I had this encounter with Jesus Christ. As soon as I got my sight back, I'm going to start proclaiming his, his gospel to the people in Damascus and the people uh, wherever I'm going. Even though he knew it would cause persecution, even though he knew it would put him on the outs with his original group of Pharisees, he didn't matter. It didn't matter to him. His obedience was to Christ and to Christ alone. Paul says that you know, Christ appointed him a servant in verse six, 16. I'm sorry. I did a word study on this word servant, and I thought it was really cool how in this 
uh, in this context here in Acts, the idea of a servant is that of a voluntary servant. It's that idea of uh, somebody uh, like an attendant uh, or an assistant, somebody that comes beside somebody in this mission or in a, in a certain task, which Paul recognized that he was doing. He was partnering with the Holy Spirit to share the gospel. He was partnering with the Holy Spirit to bring light to the Gentiles, as it says. But I think what's even more profound about this is what Paul calls himself, what Paul thinks of himself. He doesn't think of himself as an assistant. Romans 1.1, he uses the same, well, the English uses the same word. Romans 1.1 says, Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God. Paul wrote that three years before this incident that he has with Agrippa, before this conversation. But the word that he used there is the Greek word doulos, as many of your Bibles will tell you. That means slave. Jesus comes to Paul and says, I want you to be my assistant in, in sharing this message because I'm going to go with you. I'm going to do this with you and through you. But then Paul looks at himself in the light of Jesus Christ and says, I'm a slave. I'm not just a servant, I'm a slave. This idea of a slave is so profound to me is that the more I think about this, Paul's not just saying that I'm going to help. He's saying, no, I am owned by Jesus Christ. I am Jesus Christ's property. He has bought me first at my creation because he created all things were created through him. And he bought me again at my redemption. I don't belong to myself anymore. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. I am Christ, 100%. I am a slave uh, to righteousness, is what uh, Paul later writes. Uh, there's a Greek scholar, uh, Kevin Weist, I guess is how you pronounce his name. Sounds like a good German name. But uh, I found this quote that, that kind of sums it up. He says, the word doulos... Is the word that Paul uses here in, uh, in, in Romans 1 and in Philippians 1. He says the word doulos, the most abject, servile term used by Greeks to denote a slave. One who is bound to his master in cords so strong that only death could break them. One who served his master to the disregard of his own interest. One whose will was swallowed up in the will of his master. I love that analogy. Paul's will was swallowed up by the will of his master. He wanted, you know, Paul had these ideas of persecuting this church, and then Jesus Christ got a hold of him and said, no, you're going to build my church. Every, every ounce of Paul's will totally shifted from that of his own to that of Jesus Christ. If you want to live a provocative life, what are you obedient to? What are you serving? What is your master? And Jesus says you can't serve two masters, so there's one. What is that profound master in your life? What is the one that you are seeking to serve with every ounce of your being? Which one are you totally committed and given to? And that's, I guess that's a question for all of us. I know that's a question I have to ask myself, is that what am I serving? Because I want to go off on, on these other things. I want, I'm captivated by the things of the world and my flesh, just like anybody else is. And I have to continually ask myself, what am I serving? Who am I serving is more important. The fourth thing that Paul uh, caused Paul's life to be so provocative is that he is in, has embraced God's sovereignty right where he's at. 
and every situation that he's, uh, he's been in, he's just, he knows that God has him there for a reason. Verses 21 through 23 says, For this reason the Jews seized me in the temple and tried to kill me. To this day I have had the help that comes from God, and so I stand here testifying both to small and great, saying nothing but what the prophets and Moses said would come to pass, that the Christ must suffer, and that by being the first to rise from the dead, he would proclaim light both to our people and to the Gentiles. It took me a while to catch that. I don't know if you guys caught that or not. But Paul says, for this reason, I'm standing here. Paul's saying that all these circumstances, that whole big intro that I started out with where, where Paul was arrested in Jerusalem and, and kept in prison for two years and, and sent to Caesarea under the cover of darkness, that was all part of God's plan so that he could be there that day to share Christ with that group of people. Two years of imprisonment led to this point. God was not absent from any portion of it, but yet it clearly says that he was in charge of it. It's by God's sovereignty that Paul's there. We, we know this because there's other uh, uh, verses that tell us the same thing. Acts 9.15, this is when Ananias is told. When Ananias goes uh, uh, to Paul after this conversion on the road, Jesus tells Ananias, he says, But the Lord said to him, Go, for he is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before Gentiles, kings, and the children of Israel. At this very setting where Paul is, is before Agrippa, there's all three of those people groups. There's King Agrippa, there's the Gentiles, all the Roman soldiers, and there's the officials from Israel. It's a fulfillment of what Christ has already said was going to happen. Paul also knows that this is his avenue to Rome, which is what Jesus Christ told him. After he was arrested, Jesus Christ comes and stands beside him in the night and says, The following night the Lord stood by him and says, Take courage, for you have testified to the facts about me in Jerusalem, so you must testify also in Rome. That's Acts 23.11. Paul was able to recall what Christ had said to him, and he's standing there in front of this crowd, and instead of being uh, uh, acting like a prisoner and scared and nervous, and, and, and I'm sure that he was nervous, but yet he still had the composure to understand that he was there for a purpose. Each one of us are here for a purpose. As I was thinking about this, even this morning yet, in our own lives, I don't know that we understand the gravity of, of God's sovereignty in a lot of these situations. If we have the opportunity to share the gospel with somebody, that's a divine appointment. Just like Paul says here, as he's standing before King Agrippa and all these people, that's a divine appointment. He is put there by God for a purpose. Whenever we are in that situation where we have the opportunity to share the gospel or the opportunity to point somebody to Christ, it's not coincidence. It's a divine appointment. You have been chosen for that exact moment to, to work, to serve God on His behalf, to share the good news, to maybe see somebody come to Christ. Paul took this opportunity as a platform a platform to do exactly what he was called to do. So if you want this provocative life, the four points that, that, that we looked at there are hope, our passion, our obedience, and embracing God's sovereignty. If we can grasp those things in, in our daily 
lives and our encounters with people, I think that would make a huge difference. People would start to question, why do you do what you do? How do you do that? Paul gives us some more great lessons here. Uh, we'll just, I'll try to finish this up somewhat quick here. In verse 24, it says, And he was saying these things in his defense. Festus said with a loud voice, Paul, you're out of your mind. Your great learning is driving you out of your mind. Paul's life got more than just a question. It got a statement. He said, Paul, you're nuts. You're standing here in this prison. You're standing here before all these people, and you're talking about a dead man that came to you to tell us about dead man living. It doesn't make sense. Paul, you're nuts. You're out of your mind. Has anybody ever been told they're out of their mind? Yeah, Jake, I know you have, yeah. And, and, and I, think that, I think we're confirmed on that. I think we could all agree. But, uh, but here's, the thing. I, here's the thing. I used to do a lot of tree work, climbing trees to, to cut them down. And uh, I'd come down from, you know, it wasn't a bucket truck. I was actually climbing. And I would go to the top of a tree, and I would make a cut. And a lot of times I'd have to rope these things down from the top so they didn't take stuff out. So as the top of the tree would go over, and I'd be standing there, and I'd get whipped back and forth on this totem pole, basically. And, you know, everything would come down, and, and people would say, man, you are nuts. You are out of your mind. And, well, yeah. <laughs> and I would say, well, there's, it is dangerous. I'm, I can't hide the fact that it's dangerous. But I know what needs to be done up there. I know that gravity works one way, and I know the physics about what I'm doing. I know the truth. Is it dangerous? Yes. But I also know the truth to know that it's, I'm confident in my abilities to do it. People still said I'm out of my mind. Which is kind of like what Paul says here. He says, but Paul said, I am not out of my mind, most excellent Festus, but I am speaking true and rational words. For the king knows about these things, and to him I speak boldly. For I am persuaded that none of these things has escaped his notice, for this has not been done in a corner. Agrippa knows. Festus may not know, but Agrippa knows. It's been 30 years since Christ has been crucified, and the Christian movement, the, the following of Christ has done nothing but grow. Festus may not be in tune with it, but Paul is confident enough in it and confident enough that Agrippa knows it that he can stand on that. You can't hide from the facts. It hasn't been done in a corner. Nothing's been hidden. So there's truth here. Festus thinks Paul's out of his mind, but Paul says, no, you look at the history records and it shows the truth. This verse I love. Uh, I was telling Jake about this earlier. This is a huge lesson for us. It says, King Agrippa, do you believe the prophets? I know that you believe. Paul and his, guided by the Holy Spirit as he says this here, he does what we so often lack as we have a gospel-centered conversation with somebody. At least I know I'm guilty of it. I can stand there and I can tell somebody about the goodness of Christ. I can say that Jesus Christ died for your sins. Jesus Christ died and rose again so that you can have eternal life. But what's Paul ask here? Do you believe this? 
that's what we need to be conscious of as we present the gospel. As I share Christ with somebody, do you believe this? At some point, we need to ask for that decision. If we don't ask for that decision, that, that information can come in and they can just walk away with the information. But to make that decision is the most important decision in all of their life. We need to ask for it. And Paul does that here. He says, Agrippa, do you believe? He's forcing Agrippa's hand here. Now, Agrippa is too political to, to answer right away, but you can bet that Agrippa lost sleep that night because he's rolling that message over in his mind. Agrippa can't answer because if he's, remember, he's in a mixed crowd here. There's Jewish people, there's Roman people. If Agrippa says, yes, I believe in a resurrection, he looks like a fool in front of the Romans. If he says, no, I don't believe in a resurrection, he looks like a, he's making out God to be a liar in front of the Jewish people. So Paul or uh, Agrippa says, in a short time, would you persuade me to be a Christian? And Paul said, whether short or long, I would to God that not only you, but also all who hear me this day might become as I am, except for these chains. This is, I love this verse, because we think about what is Paul? Read through Ephesians chapter 1, and you know what Paul is, and you know what you are, because you've believed in these things. Ephesians chapter 1, this is just a quick rundown, Sarah, says that he is blessed in the heavenly places, that he's chosen, that he's purposed. Paul, by saying this and wishing that everybody would be as he is, he says that I stand holy and blameless before God. He says that because of Christ Jesus and the resurrection of Christ Jesus, that God's grace has been lavished upon me. Paul is wishing this same thing for everybody who hears. He's saying that you've been redeemed and forgiven by the Creator of the world. Your sins are no more, are forgiven. That's what Paul is asking for these people. That's what Paul wishes. If they would believe in that resurrection, believe in Jesus Christ, that they would all be as he is. And most importantly, I think, not most importantly, but even though Stan, Paul is standing here in chains, he's free. That's the cool thing that, that, that I wrap my head around. Even though Paul's standing there in chains, he has hope. He has passion. He's living obedient to Christ. While in chains in a Roman prison, he's still free to do all these things. He still believes in the sovereignty of God enough that he can stand there and boldly proclaim the gospel of Christ, which is exactly what he was created to do, which is exactly what we are each created to do, is to glorify God and the gifts that he's given us. No matter what situation, we can be free. And that's where our greatest freedom is found, is doing exactly what we're created to do. See, Paul's manner of life all throughout we can see, if you look back on that, it makes us ask questions of his life. It makes us ask questions. How can a man forgive the same people that are persecuting him? How can a man be shipwrecked and get up and go about his mission? How can a man be persecuted so much and continue on? How can he do it? It's because of these character traits that he has of, of obeying Christ, of the hope that there's more to it than this. Knowing that God's sovereign, 
How can he be joyful in all these things? That is one of the things that might be our biggest witness, is that we can have joy in the midst of some hard times, in the midst of life changes, that we can still find joy. When you're talking to your coworkers at work about a situation that's going on, and they're like, man, I don't know how you do it. you got a lot going on. Can you stand there and say, it's because I have hope? It's because whatever situation I'm in, I'm going to serve the Lord. Is it because I know that God, even though these conditions really stink right now, God's still sovereign. He's still in control. This is the cool thing. You can live a life like that. We all can live a life like that. And that's going to provoke people to ask questions. That's going to bring glory to Christ. That's going to be one of our biggest witnesses. And that's going to put us in the opportunity, like Paul here, to where we can share Christ with somebody. The thing about it is, Every one of us have that opportunity or that ability to do that same thing. And it all starts the same way Paul's did. It starts with that encounter with Christ. It starts with that firsthand recognition of who Jesus Christ is as Lord. And from that point on, we are given the power to live that life that, that makes people ask questions. Paul's life radically changed at that point in time. So does ours. You know, in that message, I wanted to, the, one of the points I brought up is what Paul asked for a response. He demanded a response. So today I'm asking for a response from you. If, uh, if there's somebody online or somebody in here that has not made that profession of faith in Christ but wants to live a life that makes people ask questions about where do you find this hope, where do you find this power, where do you... How do you do what you do? It all starts with that encounter in Christ, with Christ. Do you believe? Do you believe that He is the Son of God? Do you believe that He came and lived a perfect life and died for your sins? Do you believe that He rose on that third day? Do you believe that He sits at the right hand of the Father and because of that we have hope? We have a promise of a better future. We have a promise that we are purposed, that we are loved, that we are blessed, that we are chosen. I ask you if you have not made that decision to make that decision. If you have already made that decision, do you believe these things enough to let them rule your life and, and to start to change your life so that people are going to ask questions about your life? Uh, join with me in prayer today as we close up. Uh, the band had to get out of here because... Uh, because of Megan's grandmother, they got some family issues, so there's not going to be any closing song. But uh, Jake and I and, and Chuck, we're here. If anybody wants to talk after service, we'll be around. Um, Father, we thank you uh, that we can be here and, and just, uh, just learn from your word. Lord, I pray that as I rambled on about what you've laid on my heart, so many different things in this passage of Scripture, Lord, I pray that, that some stuck, that some uh, that you're using even at this moment for your glory that we could live a life, a, a, a provocative life, a life where people see the difference in us because of what you are doing inside of us, because of your Holy Spirit inside of us, Lord, that, that we would stand out in the crowd, that we would be known as a people of love and of faith and of goodness and of determination to serve you in whatever situation we find ourselves in. God, I pray that your spirit would move powerfully through us, that you would bring us joy in every situation, that you would uh, uh, enlighten our hearts to the hope that is found through knowing Jesus Christ. 
God, I thank you for who you are. We thank you that we can be here today, and we thank you that, that as we go from here, Lord, that you're sovereign in everything, and that you're going you're gonna to be right there with us through every situation and every circumstance, and your love shines through in your word, through your word, and in our hearts, and in our fellowship. God, we thank you. We love you, and it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.